Some of you who are quick-witted and have a good memory will say, hey, penal substitutionary atonement. You just talked about this a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago in 1 Peter 2, and you would be right. But what I want to do before we begin to dig into this profoundly deep, weighty, central passage of the New Testament is give a defense for repetition. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippian church in Philippians 3, for me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe and necessary. And Peter here, as you look at 1 Peter 3.18, shows us his wisdom as a pedagogue by his review of the truths he taught. And he teaches, he emphasizes the most often in his book, the truth of penal substitutionary atonement. Now, why is repetition needed? There are some of you who think, well, I told my child this once when they were seven and they shouldn't forget it ever. Why is repetition needed? Well, first of all, because we are so quick to forget. The Lord said to Israel in Deuteronomy 8, Beware that you don't forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you. And then the Lord repeated that phrase, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget, three more times in Deuteronomy 8. How does a people collectively forget something so profound as the Lord's commandments, statutes, and judgments? That was Israel's sin and our danger. In Deuteronomy 8, the Lord describes how people forget. It's a subtle drift. It happens over decades. And there are people this morning who are drifting into forgetfulness. You've all almost forgotten that everything you have and are is a gift from a gracious Lord. What happens to the man who forgets? Well, in Deuteronomy 8, the Lord says, here's what will happen if you forget the central truths. You'll turn to idolatry and perish. Forgetting has disastrous consequences. Don't scoff and say, I've got a mind like a steel trap. I never forget. Better men than you or I have been guilty of forgetfulness. This is why the promise of Christ is so needful when he told his disciples in the upper room discourse just hours before his arrest in John 14. He promises them, I will send you the helper, the Holy Spirit. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance... All the things that I've said to you. But there's another reason why repetition is good. Not only is it because we're quick to forget, but it's because we're slow to learn. I have a dear friend who struggles with the assurance of salvation. And we've rehearsed the grounds of assurance for salvation several times, probably 20 times. And the last five times we've talked, my friend has said, Carl, tell me again, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to get it. We need repetition because we're slow to learn. We need repetition because Jesus used this method and that should teach us. In, in John 21, you remember after his resurrection, Jesus turned to Peter who had denied him three times on the night before the cross. And he said to him three times, Peter, tend and feed my sheep. That repetition, when you read the narrative, happened three times in about the span of 90 seconds. If an apostle needed repetition, how much more do you and I need it? But we also need repetition because we should learn that the apostles themselves all used this pedagogical method. Paul repeated 
for three years, he tells us in Acts 20, for three years, daily and nightly, he repeated to the Ephesian congregation warnings about false teachers and wolves. Okay, Paul, you told us this this morning. Okay, you told us last night. Paul says, remember, he's telling this to the Ephesian congregation who, by the way, even after hearing it night and day, three years in a row for every day, they still succumb to wolves. But Paul tells us, remember that for three years, I didn't cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And so repetition, when we see that the apostles did it, Jesus did it, the Holy Spirit is sent to us to do this, our pulpit methodology is going to include much repetition. If you're looking for novelty, you'll be sadly disappointed. Because what you will hear at Woodruff Road from this pulpit is several basic truths repeated over and over again. The truths that nourished your soul 20 years ago and 10 years ago are meant to feed you until you end this life. The craving for originality and sensationalism is not healthy for either preacher or hearers. You'll remember this was the curse that marked the Athenian philosophers in Acts 17 when we're told of them. They spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. What I'm going to tell you today is not some new thing. It's some old thing. But you desperately need to be reminded and to, and to plunge to the depths of this old truth. Look at 1 Peter 3.18. In our context, Peter has just been discussing in the previous word, in verses 13 through 17, the believer's suffering, especially Christians suffering at the hands of wicked men. And to drive home <coughs> his argument, <coughs> Peter uses <coughs> excuse me, the ultimate example, the sufferings of Jesus. Peter has <coughs> already made his point. In 1 Peter 2, verse 20 through 24, now he does it again. In verse 18, this text becomes the basis for our doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Now, I have to tell you, right now today, in October of 2023, in the United States and Western Europe, strangely, oddly, shockingly, this doctrine is under fierce attack the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. There are all kinds of leading scholars saying, you've misunderstood what Christ was doing on the cross. Well, what we're going to assert today, what we said about 1 Peter 2, is penal substitutionary atonement is the gospel. If you came here today and you think, I, I always hear gospel-driven this, and this is the gospel, that's the gospel. Carl, could you clarify? Yes. 1 Peter 3.18, the text we will look at, is the gospel. We're told, for example, by Peter's fellow apostle, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand. Paul says, here it is. Christ died for our sins. That's penal substitutionary atonement. Now, I want you to notice, if you look at our text, who Peter is telling the gospel unto, because there are some of you right now thinking, well, I'm glad Carl's going to preach the gospel because I have an unchurched friend. He's sitting right down here, and he really needs to hear that. You go, Carl. I'll sit back and take a nap while you preach the gospel to him. Do you know who Peter is preaching the gospel to? At the beginning of his epistle in 1 Peter 1, verses 2 and 4, 
Peter says he's writing to the elect. He's writing to believers, to the regenerate. So I have no reticence whatsoever this morning to preach the gospel to believers because they need to hear it again. To a group of the elect. And neither should you, if you've walked with Christ for 40 years, neither should you have any reservations about hearing the gospel and rejoicing once again in the good news of penal substitutionary atonement. We'll need the help of the Holy Spirit, who is is called now in this moment to bring the truth to our remembrance and to guide us into all truth. Let's ask for that now. Our Father, we thank you for the word, its clarity and authority and inerrancy, and that it is our sure foundation. And we confess by our unaided human reason we cannot comprehend these words before us. We need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes. We thank you that this text particularly reveals our Savior and his work so clearly. We ask now that you would drive these words deep into our minds and hearts. It is vanity if only a man speaks to us. And so now by your Spirit and your word, speak to us. We cast ourselves again upon you. Confident that you will give us light and understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look carefully at 1 Peter 3.18. And you will notice how many weighty truths are stored up for us there. The first is that we need to think about the greatness of the person's suffering. And I just want to speak to this for one minute. The greatness of the person suffering. Peter says, for Christ also suffered. Peter's been speaking up until now in verses 13 through 17 of the believer's suffering. No great surprise, we're sinners. Our suffering comes upon us as a consequence of living in a fallen world. Peter's been speaking of the believer's suffering. But now, incredulous, Peter says these words, and you and I should be astounded at these words. Christ also suffered. This is Christ the anointed one. This is Christ the God-man. This is Christ the beloved of the Father. This is Christ the one who spoke and galaxies leaped into existence. This is Christ the one who thundered his holy law from atop Mount Sinai. This is the suffering one. And you think you should not have to suffer? It's more than fascinating. It's troubling to me. As I've, in very difficult moments, even with people in this room, who's they're going through suffering, they're suffering so badly they're out of their mind. And they've forgotten a principal truth. And they will say, I shouldn't have to be suffering this way. And I typically, very gently, pastorally, try to remind them, my friend, Christ suffered. Are you above him? Well, notice what the intent of Jesus' suffering is. And there's where the penal aspect of penal substitutionary atonement comes in. Look at the intent of Jesus' suffering. Christ also suffered once, here it comes, for sins. Jesus didn't die by accident, just as men on death row don't die by accident in the electric chair. Jesus' sufferings were penal. He was paying a penalty. 
Jesus was paying the sin debt for the wicked, the guilty. In biblical thought, death is always related to sin. Death is the final curse of the law. The basis of this is found in the original prohibition given to Adam in the garden. You remember in Genesis 2, the Lord God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. In this warning, life will be forfeited by man's transgression. The judgment of death is not given in general, but the full penalty suggests immediate death. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the penalty for sin is immediate death. Scripture sees death in connection with sin, and it presents this truth without glossing over it. The sinner earns for himself instantaneous death in the fullest sense of the word. The sinner deserves to die. Sin is a capital offense. That God didn't enact the penalty upon Adam and Eve immediately is an overwhelming proof of his grace and long-suffering. In the Old Testament, God restricted capital punishment to a limited list, 17 of them, major offenses. This was an expression of grace. The New Testament list is even more limited. In contemporary civilization, the list of capital crimes has been limited almost to the point of non-existence. By comparison with present-day standards, (coughs) the Old Testament list of capital offenses seems severe. Yet in the total perspective of the Bible, the Old Testament is not a history of severity, but of continual mercy, long-suffering, manifested by a benevolent God to his covenant-violating life-forfeiting people. From time to time in biblical history, the people of God are given sober reminders of God's prerogative to judge sin by death. We'll begin to look at that tonight in Joshua 7 as we look at the sin of Achan that merited the immediate death penalty. Or there was the case of Uzzah who touched the Ark of the Covenant. Or Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit. But once we grasp the gravity of sin and its destructive power on people and life, we'll be amazed at how gracious God was and is. But without a proper understanding of the wickedness of sin and the holiness of God, the Old Testament and the cross are scandalous to our understandings. But Jesus died. In death, he received judgment. Here the one who was obedient was struck with the punishment due to the disobedient. The judgment due to the first Adam was transferred to the second Adam. Look at those words in 1 Peter 3.18 and understand the first part of our equation. The death Jesus died was a penal substitutionary term. It was the penalty for sin. But then secondly, I want you to notice that it was a substitutionary atonement. Now, the, the nature of Jesus' suffering was unthinkable because it was the just, look at our text, the just for the unjust. When Peter says Jesus was just, he means that Jesus was completely spotless and holy, that he would be the one suffering the penalty. He was the one who was perfect. No moral flaws in him, no guilt. And this isn't just the judgment of Peter. It's the judgment of everybody who writes of this. 
For example, you remember just before the crucifixion, in Matthew 27, we read, Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat and his wife sent to him and said, have nothing to do with that just man, meaning that man who's not guilty. The centurion who stood at the foot of the cross said in Luke 23, certainly this was a righteous man. In Acts chapter 3, Peter is preaching his second great sermon in Jerusalem, and he says, you denied the Holy One and that just man. John, our Lord Jesus' closest friend, said in 1 John 2, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. For a righteous or innocent person to suffer any punishment is horrific and unthinkable. Jesus was the lamb without spot or blemish. The old covenant sacrificial lamb slain as a sin offering had to be without defect. You remember from the law in Leviticus 4. That's why when Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, saw him coming down the street toward him, he cried out, Look, the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus' closest friends, Peter and James and John, and his fiercest opponents, even demons, all confessed He was just, sinless, righteous, undeserving of any penalty at all. Periodically we hear and we're taken aback and we're shocked. We hear of men who've done time, time in prison. 10, 20, 30 even read about a man in Mississippi in the last week who was just released after suffering 40 years and DNA proved him to be innocent. People suffer this way because of mistaken witness identification or new DNA evidence comes to light or perjury or misconduct by a witness. But these miscarriages of justice, as horrible as they are, are nothing compared to what happened at the cross. Because these men we spoke of who have done 10, 20, 30, 40 years, they're guilty of 10,000 other sins. But Jesus was pure in all his motives and acts and words and thoughts and deeds. And so listen closely to the core of the gospel. Look at it there in your text in 1 Peter 3.18. The beneficiaries of Jesus, who was the just one suffering, were wicked men. Peter calls them the unjust. Jesus, you see, didn't substitute for good men, righteous men, honest men. He took the place of men who were dead in trespasses and sins. Men who were corrupt. Men who were dishonest. Men who were offensive to God. This is why Paul states that Jesus justifies the ungodly in Romans 4. This is one more place where the gospel, the preaching of it, is a stumbling block. Right now there are some of you who are just about to stumble at this characterization. Because to receive the gospel, you must acknowledge your corruption and wickedness. You must. It's deeply offensive to many that the gospel demands of them to confess that they are wicked fools, unjust, unrighteous, lawbreakers, and hell-bound. Our generation has tried to rename all of these things. They've tried to blunt this often. 
or psychologize this or soften it. So today, and let me ask you if you've used this phrase, please stop using it. So today, the popular expression is when someone will say, are you a sinner? Oh, I'm very broken. About four years ago, a young woman and I stood in the narthex on a Sunday night, and she'd worshipped here. She'd come to the intro class that morning. And when we were discussing that we must see ourselves in our need, she was insistent that she was not a guilty sinner. But she said, I'm not a guilty sinner, but Carl, I'm very broken. I said, I'm slow. In fact, I'm the slowest guy in the room. Would you please explain what you mean by brokenness? And she stated that people had been mean to her and misused her, and therefore she was broken. But she refused to see herself as a guilty lawbreaker who had offended a holy God. I said, so what you're saying is, is you'll freely admit that people have sinned against you. Yes, yes. But you cannot confess that you have sinned against others or God. No, I have not. And so let me warn you to not use unbiblical language. Put the term broken out of your vocabulary. Instead, use the term that's used here in 1 Peter 3.18. That Christ the just died for me, the unjust. Jesus died for sinners. He died for moral degenerates and the unrighteous. He died for the unjust. And then notice another truth about this penal substitutionary atonement. It's unrepeatable. Look at what we're told in 1 Peter 3.18. Christ also suffered, here it comes, once, just once, for sins. In Roman Catholic doctrine, the Mass is the sacrifice of Christ, and it's repeated endlessly. And so you'll know what Rome means by this, why, why the Mass is repeated millions of times a day all over the globe. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, this is the most recent catechism, and so we're standing on good ground in saying this. Rome confesses this. It's question 1367. In the sacrifice of the Eucharist, the very same Jesus is once again offered through the ministry of priests. This divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, is the very same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner, is now offered again, and this sacrifice now truly propitiates. Do you hear what Rome is saying? They're saying, no, the sacrifice of Jesus, that one sacrifice performed on Calvary's hill in 30 AD, it's not adequate. It needs to be done over and over again. But do you remember what Jesus' words were as he hung on the cross and he screamed out in agony those glorious words of John 19.30, Tetelestai, it is finished. What a folly that Christ is re-sacrificed or stated that he is. This undermines the once-for-all nature of his atonement. The Father signified his acceptance of Jesus' one-time work by removing the symbol of separation. You remember when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn open from top to bottom, according to Matthew 27, to signify that the Father had accepted Jesus' sacrifice. No more need. For any other sacrifice. But the greatest proof of the finality 
And the acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice was the resurrection. That's why Paul can say in Romans 4, Jesus was raised for our justification. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.3, When Jesus had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. Jesus' work is done. He no longer has to make atonement any longer. The author of Hebrews goes on to say that the Old Testament priesthood was imperfect. They had to keep making sacrifices over and over again. But when Jesus came as the final priest and died, it is finished. If sacrifices keep being made, what is clearly being inferred is that sins have not yet been taken away. And that's a hideous lie. The Roman Catholic Church distorts the atonement by calling Jesus to be re-sacrificed over and over again. It's almost comedic to me that Rome calls Peter their first pope. Notice who it is who contradicts Roman Catholic doctrine. Look at 1 Peter 3.18. It is the alleged first pope of Rome who says, no need for a second sacrifice. No need for daily masses because Christ also suffered once for sins. The Apostle Peter is completely insistent that what happened at the cross can never be repeated, nor does it need be. Because of the absolute sufficiency of Christ's death, he only needed to suffer once. But then we've spoken of penal and substitutionary, but we have to talk about the atonement. Look at these words in 1 Peter 3.18, that Jesus was put to death in the flesh. The penalty for sin against God is death, atoning death, sacrificial death. Christ had to endure the death penalty. This is why Paul can write, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The next time you're tempted to minimize your sin, you think, it's not so bad. The spotless Son of God had to be slaughtered for your sin and mine. And Jesus, by his suffering and death, satisfied the requirements of God's justice. You cannot preach the gospel, at least the gospel that saves, unless you preach about an atoning death. It's wise and good and necessary for us to regularly rehearse and analyze the events of the last hours of Jesus' life and to study the cross and the crucifixion. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, Jews ask for signs, Greeks seek for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's obvious that all the apostles, whether it be John or Peter or Paul, were death-focused. When we say Christ died, we have to specify the manner of death and speak of the cross. There were three forms of execution in use by the Romans in the first century. Death by burning, mauling by beasts, and crucifixion. And all historians acknowledge that crucifixion was the worst due to its agonizing and torturous slowness. Crucifixion was that method of execution adopted by the Romans to punish serious crimes. It was almost never used on Roman citizens. It was reserved for slaves, pirates, political rebels. The cross was a pole placed in the ground. 
topped by a portable crossbeam. The victim would be attached to the crossbeam while he laid on the ground. Then the cross, the crossbeam was connected to the center pole and dropped with a shocking thud into a hole that was pre-dug. <clears throat> In the case of the Lord Jesus, we know that nails were used, according to John 20, to attach him to the rough wood. When men were nailed to the cross, the torture was beyond description because nails would be driven through the nerve centers of the wrists, the palms, and the ankles. Nails at crucifixion sites had been recovered by archaeological digs, and they were usually about eight inches long. Jesus was crucified about 9 a.m., remained on the cross until 3 p.m., and from noon till 3 p.m., the second half of his stint on the cross, there was darkness over the land. And during those hours, Jesus spoke seven times. <clears throat> the last seven words, his first word was, Father, forgive them. And his final word was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And these words were particularly agonizing because Jesus would have to speak during exhalation and each breath would have been crushingly painful. Among other agonies that a crucified man would endure, as his feet rested on a tiny step not very far above the ground, other indignities would include severe inflammation, the swelling of the wounds in the areas of the nail from infection, unbearable pain from torn tendons, fearful discomfort from the strained position of the body, intense Headaches beyond anything a migraine sufferer has ever known and burning thirst. Any movement was agonizing. It would involve severe pain in his hands and feet and back, which had already been made raw by the scourging. Adding to all this pain was the midday sun, beating down, no shade available, and fiendishly annoying insects and birds of prey would come and do their worst, and the victim could do nothing to chase them away. Death by crucifixion was an agonizingly slow process. There are documented accounts from the first and second century of crucifixion, sometimes taking men days to die. But sometimes in order to hasten death, the Roman soldiers would increase the strain on the body by breaking the leg bones of the victims. Without their ability to support the body, the victim's lungs would collapse and they would immediately suffocate. Death usually came to the crucified sufferer through a combination of exposure, asphyxia, blood loss, and severe cardiac rupture. I haven't even mentioned the cursedness of death on a cross. The Old Testament decreed that having one's body hung on a tree was a mark, a demonstration that this man was accursed by God, which of course is why the Jews wanted Jesus hung on a cross, that it was demonstrate that he was cursed by God. The idea of a crucified Messiah was preposterous to them, not understanding that Jesus was becoming an atoning sacrifice for us. He bore our sins and its consequences, even the curse of a holy God. And so we must never grow weary of repeating and stating what was happening at the cross. Christ died for our sins. The gospel is much more than a declaration that Jesus died. It tells us why he died. For our sins. He died voluntarily. No one took his life away from him. He laid it down freely. He died vicariously. All his sins were 
vicarious, in our place. He died not for any sins of his own, but as a payment for ours. He died as a substitute. And amazingly, he died victoriously. Jesus, in his death, crushed the serpent's head and shall have that which he died for. His people shall be saved. His father shall be glorified, and he shall be exalted. I want you to notice how important this central truth is, is that Jesus actually was dead. Look at 1 Peter 3.18. We're told Peter adds the qualifying phrase, the clarifying phrase. He was put to death in the flesh. John says it in Revelation 1 when he recounts the words of Jesus who says, I was dead and now I'm alive. Peter on the Sermon on the Day of Pentecost says to thousands of Israelite men, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, you've taken by lawless hands, you've crucified and you've put him to death. No one stood up that day in Pentecost in Jerusalem and said, well, Peter, we didn't actually kill him. It was sort of a metaphorical, a figurative death. No. No one stood up and contradicted Peter when he said, you have put Jesus to death because they all knew it to be so. Luke, the precise historian and physician who would know a thing or two about dead bodies, tells us, When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last. A few moments after that, if you could have made your way into that borrowed tomb and touched Jesus, he wouldn't have roused. His skin would have been cold and clammy because he was lifeless. He was dead. The one who spoke and gave life to solar systems was lifeless. We mustn't run away too quickly to the resurrection, that we run past this central fact. Look at 1 Peter 3.18. Jesus was put to death in the flesh. He was the atoning sacrifice. Notice then that Peter tells us the final aspect of this. He was made alive by the Spirit. Peter is speaking of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Paul concurs when he writes of Jesus in Romans 1.4, he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of God by the resurrection from the dead. <coughs> when the Holy Spirit raised <coughs> Jesus to life, it was a demonstration that his atoning sacrifice had been accepted by the Father. I want you to notice something. This is not an aside, but it's powerful. I want you to notice how Trinitarian Peter's gospel messages. Look at your text, 1 Peter 3.18. First of all, he speaks of the Father. We're told in just a moment that Jesus died and rose that Christ might bring us to God, the Father. Then he speaks of the Son. The Son, the spotlight is on Christ's suffering and resurrection. And then the focus is on the Holy Spirit by the last phrase. He was made alive by the Spirit. Peter is insisting that it's the third person of the Godhead is the one who made Jesus alive. There's a simple application. It's contained in the very text itself. I want you to notice what the goal of all of this was. What was the goal of the penal? Jesus bearing the penal. Substitutionary. Jesus dying in your place. Atonement. Death. What was the goal of all of this? Look at the words of verse 18 and delight in them. 
so that he might bring us to God. The effect of Jesus crushing death and his triumphant resurrection is to enable you to enter the holy presence of God. His penal substitutionary atoning death is what gives you access. <clears throat> Jesus, by paying our debt, has removed the sin that separated us and alienated us from the Father, and we are now accepted, now beloved. And this is simply the fulfillment of what Jesus told his disciples the night before he went to the cross when Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. All of this, the penalty, the suffering, the death, was so that you might be brought safely home to the Father's house. Let's pray. Our Father, how we praise you for sending your beloved Son to be humiliated on our behalf, for sending him to be despised and not esteemed, for sending him to be bruised and crushed for our iniquities. We confess that we will go to any lengths to avoid any humbling or lowering. But our Father, we see how readily Jesus, for the joy set before him, despised the shame and endured the cross. Oh, Jesus, dare we ever again doubt your deep, eternal love for sinners when we see what you've endured for us, even undergoing the terrible agony of a shameful, cursed death for us. And so, Father, give us hearts to reciprocate with great love for Christ. Cause us to be a people that deeply love him and firmly trust him. We pray in the name of the Savior who has died for us.